0: Hello and welcome back to the Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power. My name is Zaid Wahab, and today we'll pick up where we left off with the worsening anarchy in Samarra. Our focus will be on the events of 865, the most disastrous year of Al-Musta'in's reign. Infighting between the troops escalated until the armies found themselves evenly split, dragging Iraq into a civil war. It took a whole year of death and destruction before one side emerged with a pyrrhic victory. Episode 70 Proxy Fitna It's incredible how fast and far the caliphate's fortunes deteriorated during al-Musta'in's days. Between his ascension in June 862 and the end of 864, the Abbasids had lost control of pretty much everything. The troops no longer heeded the caliph's orders and fought one another over power and gold instead. With free reign over the treasury, they helped themselves to as much wealth as they could divvy up without killing one another, bankrupting the state. The Ummah was thoroughly disenchanted, and only in the capital province of Iraq did the Abbasid name still command any respect. The clan itself, however, held no meaningful authority. Its dynasts had centralized power so absolutely that once the vicissitudes of fate had allowed a puppet to be installed, None of his kin had any recourse to claim the throne. We shouldn't blame these calamities on al-Musta'in. The crux of the issue was that he was nothing more than an impotent figurehead. It's easy to forget that he was a captive, installed by power-hungry generals, who needed Abbasid to legitimize their de facto rule. The caliph himself was all too happy to live in denial, and he yielded to luxuries as the state his forefathers built was hollowed out. But if things had gone from the frying pan to the fire in his first three years, then in 865 they plunged all the way down to hell. Predictably, the problem stemmed from competition between the military leaders. Wasif and little Bura had managed to maintain their grip over the armies for this long, but it got harder with every passing day. The latest threat to their monopoly on power was Baghir, who had led the squad which killed Al-Mutawakkil. He wasn't the only leader they had to contend with, but I really want to minimize the number of personalities I introduce as they can quickly become overwhelming. I'm not trying to be patronizing or anything, just reasonable. New names come and go so rapidly that I worry about listener fatigue. To be honest, I was even tempted to cut out Ahmad ibn al-Khassib and Atamish altogether due to how short-lived their contributions were, but ultimately decided against it. Their brief flirtations with power didn't have a lasting impact, but I kept them in because I felt their dizzying speed captured the erratic intensity of the anarchy. There are other examples from this chaotic period, and I guess you'll just have to trust that I'm picking the right ones to talk about. Anyway, back to Berger. He used to be one of Little Lidlboga's captains, but the rewards he received for carrying out his regicidal orders opened up new possibilities for him. Not only was he promoted and celebrated in his little circle of officers, but he was also gifted valuable estates, which generated considerable revenue. In just a few years, the enterprising Bagir transmuted that wealth and fame into real influence among the troops. As his star rose higher, Bagir realized that his ambitions put him on a collision course with the old guard, who were too insecure about their own authority to allow new faces into the upper echelons. He may have figured that if you can't join him, beat him, because thereafter Berger began to grow his following by undermining Wasif and Little Boga's reputation with the rank and file. His most effective pitch was spreading rumors about illicit wealth. By this point, the treasurer was none other than Wasif's secretary, so it was an easy narrative to peddle. Corruption is always a given, but from what I can tell, the troops were actually being paid pretty well, though I suppose nobody likes to feel cheated. Bagherr's master plan went beyond winning the caliph over by wresting control from the old guard. The way he saw it, earning the king's favor brought no security. For true power, one had to become the king-maker. The audacious Turk must have developed a taste for Abbasid blood. Because he sought to overthrow Wasif, Little Burra, and Al-Musna'in all in one. He wanted to install his own Abbasid, who would forever owe his position to Bagherr. We're told he assembled a tight band of loyalists to help him carry out his scheme, but that word got out before they had a chance to pull the trigger. Somehow, Al-Musta'in caught wind of these designs, and he summoned Wasif and Little Bura to ask if they were involved. It's a succinct reflection of Al-Musta'in's feebleness. Having heard rumors that he was to be murdered, all he could do was complain to his wardens about how unfair it was to kill him for occupying a position he had never sought in the first place. But they had nothing to do with the plot. Once the generals pieced everything together, they were taken aback at Berger's gall, and the three agreed that they had to immediately eliminate the dangerous upstart. To make a long story short, he was invited to Little Buga's house, separated from his bodyguards, and put to death. When news of Bagher's arrest reached his followers, they flocked to Little Bughas, and upon discovering that their master had already been killed, they set first the house, then the whole city on fire. The situation spiraled out of control so rapidly that Little Bughas, Wasif, and Al-Musta'in boarded a boat and escaped the capital in fear for their lives that same night. This was in February of 865. Their destination was Baghdad, where they hoped they would be safe from their own men. I don't want to exaggerate their circumstances. It's not like it was the three musketeers against the world. Some supporters followed Wasif and Bilboga to Baghdad, and the Tahirid governor of the city remained loyal to the Abbasids, but the bulk of the armies were indeed against them. After throwing their destructive tantrum, the troops left in Samarra realized how intractable their position was without the caliph. al Musta'in may have seemed entirely superfluous, but in reality he was the only indispensable man in the capital. Their leaders wrote asking for an audience in Baghdad and were told to ride only to its outskirts and disarm themselves before taking boats the rest of the way so as not to alarm the civilian population. None of these rebel leaders are important enough to remember, except perhaps by Quebec, who does come up again down the line. In a show of remorse, they wore their saddles around their necks to humble themselves before the caliph. They apologized for their behavior and asked for their lord's forgiveness. Al-Musta'in replied by listing their many offenses and contrasted those to how well he had treated them. The caliph concluded by saying that he forgave their transgressions and would continue to authorize the payment of their salaries, but that he would not return to the capital just yet. Once they got to Samarra, the troops did something crazy. They decided they didn't need al Musta'in after all. They already had a couple Abbasids of their own in custody. Not only were they al-Mutawakkil's intended successors, But the pair also had a bone or two to pick with their father's killers, Wasif and Little Bura. Thus they fished al-Mu'taz and al-Mu'ayyad out of captivity and pledged to the first as the new caliph and the second as his heir, sparking the latest fitna. Although things are just starting to heat up, we should take a minute to properly frame what was going on. Otherwise this meeting with the caliph sounds a little crazy. The Turks suffered no material consequences, but despite al-Musta'in's leniency towards them, they rebelled in the only completely irreconcilable way. To make sense of things, we need to ask ourselves who was calling the shots. In Baghdad, it was Wasif and Little Burra, And in Samarra, it was a handful of rebel leaders who were only united in their opposition to the old guard. Their trip to Baghdad wasn't an attempt at making peace, but to see whether they could pry the caliph away from his generals. As the rebel leaders were making a play for al-Musta'in, Wasif and Little Bughah tried to appeal to the rank and file. By having the caliph offer such generous terms, they hoped to assure the troops that they still had their backs and to communicate how reasonable and forgiving they could be. It must have been an effective stratagem because the rebel leaders found it necessary to extinguish any hope of a peaceful resolution by going full fitna. It's unclear if they arrived at this decision following a sober appraisal of their chance for victory, or if they simply one-upped one another in competition. But one way or another, they crossed the Rubicon. Unlike previous fitnas, the claimants this time around were mere pawns in their respective camps. Al-Mas'udi often includes amusing lines of verse in his history, and we find some calling al Musta'in a parrot in a golden cage, mindlessly repeating what Wasif and Little Burrah told him to say. While the two generals played a small part in the fight against his cousin Al-Mu'taz, the lead fell to the governor of Baghdad, Muhammad ibn Abdullah ibn Tahir, who we'll just call Muhammad. This makes sense for several reasons. Muhammad commanded the loyalty of his men. As a Tahirid, he could expect some support from Khurasan. His standing enhanced al-Musta'in's sorely lacking credibility. And, unlike the Turks, he wasn't widely detested across the caliphate. Muhammad's first objective was to fortify Baghdad. Moats were dug right outside its walls and preparations were made to ensure its defenders had ready access to supplies. Similar arrangements were made in the towns surrounding the city, though these were far more modest in scale. In case you still had al-Mansur's round city in mind, the Baghdad I'm referring to is the much larger urban sprawl surrounding that nucleus. I'll post a map I found online on the episode's page at thecaliphs.com for anyone interested to check out. The only hostile moves we hear about were orders to cut all provisions to Samarra, both food and gold. From these decisions, we can surmise that Muhammad's strategy was to outlast the rebels and to only engage them from behind thick walls. We don't know how many soldiers Muhammad commanded, though it seems like armies from around Iraq and some from as far as Syria heeded his call to arms. Eastern Khorasan couldn't spare any troops as its hapless governor was distracted trying to retake Tabaristan from the Hashemites. Finally, it seems like mercenaries and Baghdadis alike were recruited to help with the city's defense. It's a wide range, but Muhammad's overall fighting force was probably between twenty and 30,000 strong. We find slightly more accurate numbers in Samarra. But on the whole, things were just as chaotic over there. Although some of Wasif and little men had managed to rejoin their old masters, the majority seemed to have switched sides. Only a couple hundred tried to hire a boat to ferry them to Baghdad, but they were prevented from leaving. Therefore, the main challenge facing al Mortez was not military in nature. It was how to legitimize his claim. His first orders were to award the troops with ten months of pay, but there was only enough in the treasury for two. Next, he attempted to get his Abbasid kin to pledge to him, but that endeavor met with limited success as well. Understandably few thought it was a good idea to interfere in what was considered to be a quarrel among the Turks. Al-Mu'taz could only count on the support of his brothers one of whom was put in charge of the military effort to give it a Abbasid sheen. This proved to be a fateful decision, and the man chosen to lead Samarra's armies is someone you'll want to keep an eye on. Histories often refer to Talha ibn al-Mutawakkil by his technonym Abu Ahmad, or his title, but for the sake of clarity, it's best we just call him Talha going forward. Al-Mu'taz was his half-brother, and not that it matters, but Al-Mu'ayyad was his full brother. Approximately speaking, Talha was 22, al mutaz was around 18, and Al-Mu'ayyad about 15 years old. Okay, now that introductions have been made on both sides, it is time for action. In late February 865, Talha went to besiege Baghdad with an army of 5,000 Turks and 2,000 Maghreba or North Africans. This may seem like a small number, but these were hardened veterans, far more effective than the mercenaries and irregulars recruited by Muhammad in a hurry. They looted fields and villages along the way, intending to impoverish and crowd their target by forcing the terrified provincial population to flock to its relative safety. They arrived at the edge of Baghdad in early March and made their camp outside the eastern walls. Instead of laying siege to the city, they first tried to force their way in. But the Turks were surprised at the fierce resistance they met. They couldn't even gain enough ground to deploy their equipment and had to withdraw back to camp. Within a few days, they attacked and overwhelmed the defenders of Nahrawan, the largest town east of Baghdad. This was thought to be important because it lay on the road to Harassan, And any reinforcements from the province would have to come through it. Although none were ever sent, the easy victory helped restore morale. A few days later, so late March, another force of four thousand Turks and Maghrebah was sent from Samarra, this time approaching Baghdad from the west. Muhammad ordered his army to attack them the morning after they made camp, leading to a volatile confrontation which at different times swung in either party's favor. Ultimately, the Baghdadis emerged victorious, killing over 2,000 of their foes. The surviving Turks retreated, and news of their defeat led to riots in Samarra. This was an unexpected triumph for Baghdad, but unfortunately the opportunity it created was not seized. Some narrations blame Wasif and Little Bugha, saying they shielded the Turks by obstructing plans for a follow-up attack. But the defensive posture tracks well with Muhammad's cautious approach. Talha remained in position east of the city, and we don't hear of any major maneuvers, so it sounds like the battle over Baghdad ground to a stalemate. Outside, however, the Turks scored victories in other surrounding towns employing the same scorched-earth tactics they had earlier. These assaults came in July, and they critically disrupted the city's supply lines, although it would be a few months before well-stocked Baghdad felt their impact. In early September, the Turks tried a pincer attack against the city from its east and west. The defense of the east held up, but in the west it failed despite some valiant resistance. The Turks breached the walls and torched the northwestern Harbiya district, historically the headquarters of the Abna. To their credit, Muhammad's commanders managed to recover before too long. They expelled the Turks, patched up the walls, and reoccupied their previous positions. Hundreds, perhaps thousands, died on either side. But within a couple weeks, everything had reverted to the way it was. While the stalemate returned, the overall situation was leaning to Samarra's advantage. It is true that Baghdad resisted the siege well, but the longer it was surrounded by Turkish armies, the more dubious its circumstances appeared to the Ummah. It was also starting to run out of supplies, and some officials were no longer getting their salaries. It is at this point that we hear whispers of a secret correspondence between Muhammad and Al Mu'taz. This wasn't the first time the Abbasid and Samarra had reached out, and it was expected of both claimants to try and sway as many commanders from the other side as they could. It was the first time Muhammad is said to have replied, and although he denied it in public, the rumors were true. However, he wasn't betraying Al Musta'in; It was all a ruse to try and gain the upper hand. Muhammad made it sound like he was ready to collaborate with Samarra to lull Talha into a sense of security, creating the perfect opportunity for a surprise attack. It came in early November, and Muhammad ordered his men to march out in full force. The larger Baghdadi army caught the Turks unaware, causing them to flee after a brief skirmish. It was a short-lived triumph, however. Muhammad's inexperienced troops quickly lost their focus and busied themselves with ransacking the camp, giving Talha the time he needed to rally his men and organize a counter-attack. Led by Baikabag and Musa ibn Bugha, Samarra's professional soldiers drove the Baghdadis back to their city. The son of Bugha had grown especially close to Talha, and the partnership they established during the course of this campaign will play a pivotal role in the Caliphate's future. By December, the situation in Baghdad had begun to turn desperate. Food shortages led to widespread anger, and Muhammad had no choice but to open negotiations with al mutaz this time in earnest. Starvation spread by the middle of the month, and by the end of it, a provisional agreement to depose Al-Musta'in was reached, prompting Talha to allow five shipments of grain to enter Baghdad. Their bellies full, the people now protested Muhammad's shameful betrayal and threatened the governor's life. But Al-Musta'in spoke up in his defense, and the crowds dispersed as per their caliph's orders. There was a back and forth for a few weeks while the details were hammered out and Muhammad and talha met in early January to formalize the deal. It was lenient to everyone except al Musta'in, who had to go into exile between Mecca and Medina. Wasif and little Burra were both pardoned, and Muhammad was promised control over a third of the state's annual revenue so he could pay his troops and maintain order in Baghdad. Thus al Musta'in became the first caliph to abdicate and in the last week of January 866, after he officially pledged to his cousin, the minarets of Baghdad called prayers in the name of their latest caliph, al-Mu'taz. Although the war was over, I'm not sure I see any winners. al Musta'in was a clear loser, Baghdad itself was destroyed, and much of its eastern half had to be abandoned. Its countryside was ravaged as well, and the state's finances only got worse as its agricultural output suffered year after year. Now that the caliphate was broke, nobody wanted to do business with it anymore. Merchants who in the past would have readily lent money to the state now hid their wealth instead. Military leaders on both sides were assured of a place in the new order, even Wasif and Little Burra. This meant that unless the caliph could find a way of getting everyone to work together, the competition between the Turks would resume. These were only some of the problems al-Mu'taz would have to deal with, an unenviable position that makes you wonder what he really won. I want to stick with Wasif and little Bura for a minute, because I couldn't believe they survived this whole war in peace. They stayed in Baghdad, and were told Al-Mu'taz tried to hire an officer to assassinate them after he was acknowledged as caliph. Wasif and Little Bura caught wind of the plot and used their connections in the army to put an end to it. Wasif then sent his sister some orders. She dug up a million dinar he had embezzled and buried somewhere on his estate in Samarra' and offered it to Al-Mu'ayyad in return for speaking to his brother on Wasif's behalf. I was impressed by that one. Real smooth. Little Bughah also did something with Talha. The conquering hero similarly lobbied the Caliph, as did many other officers. The survival of the old guard is the perfect example to showcase the limits of the Caliph's authority. Al-Mu'taz really, really wanted both Wasif and Little Burra dead. But their influence among the troops meant that he had to hire them as governors instead. The Abbasid state no longer catered to its caliph's wishes, and his administrative role was vaguer now than ever before. Succeeding a puppet meant that al-Mu'taz had to somehow prove his position even mattered, and he struggled to adjust at first. The end of the fitna brought little peace, and the caliphate's outlook remained gloomy as economic hardship replaced civil strife. I want to tie our show's subtitle into the discussion. We've clearly been covering the fall of Arab power for a while now, and this period seems like the nadir of that narrative arc. You can imagine the rest of the show basically saying that the caliphate hobbles onwards, thoroughly compromised, until Arab power was extinguished. But it's useful to make a distinction between Arab and Abbasid here. The Arabs had been irrelevant to official power for over 50 years by this point, but now that the Abbasid state was imploding, there was suddenly room for local political alternatives. This was clearest in Syria and Mesopotamia, where the existence of external threats meant that the void left by the Caliphate had to be filled quickly and effectively. Arab tribes played a major role in defending those areas from the Byzantines giving them de facto political authority. Mesopotamia would soon erupt in rebellion, with its tribes and local Kurds working together to overthrow Abbasid sovereignty. Later on, both it and Syria will be home to some of the most quintessentially Arab dynasties, where poetry, culture and science will flourish. Additionally, The tribes of the Arabian Peninsula had already reverted to their fiercely independent lifestyles and they largely avoided the Abbasid realm. They were allowed to do as they pleased so long as they did not harass any passing pilgrim caravans. They too took advantage of the caliphate's absence and began to live more freely than before. My point is that the fall of Abbasid power didn't necessarily mean the fall of Arab power. The latter was actually on the rise. No longer the masters of the empire they had once built, the Arabs were ironically beneficiaries of its demise. That wasn't true in Iraq, where the caliphate's collapse wreaked havoc on people's lives. But outside of the capital province, Arabs were engaging in new political arrangements, a hopeful development for their future. I'm afraid that's the only ray of light I can offer. And we'll return to the darkness of the anarchy next time. Here on the Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power.